Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Hello, everybody. It is your professor of the occult, wizard Holden McNeely. And coming to you live on podcast, it's Saturday Night Lovecraft with Azatoth, Cthulhu, <laughs> Dagon, Nyarlehotep, featuring Shogoth, and musical guest Yogg-Sothoth. And now, here's your host, the bruiser, some... Guy from New England who's writing about how he's poo-poo and peeing himself because he saw a weird rectangle. Uh, it's great to be here, guys. It's great to be here. In my wildest <laughs> imaginations, I just couldn't believe that I uh, went to Antarctica and saw some weird rectangles, and now I can't stop pee-peeing, poo-pooing myself. <laughs> um, this is such a weird one. We are doing an episode on HP Lovecraft. And by the way, this is a Patreon-sponsored episode from Matt Ambler. Matt, thank you so much. Matt is uh, a, a, a friend of mine, actually. I would consider him. Uh, he is Professor Addy on Twitch. I rate him from time to time. If you follow my Twitch channel, he is very, very good at The Binding of Isaac and other, other such games. He's just very good at video games. Professor Addy, A-D-D-Y, on Twitch. He streams uh, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. EST, Monday through Friday, uh, and he's streaming, he's a streaming demon and we love him for it. And, uh, uh, thank you so much for this. I'm so happy to finally do this episode. This is actually one of the first episodes that we got, uh, funded. Way back in the original era. Yeah. <laughs> and we were waiting for a long time to do it, um, for various reasons, but it's finally time to do it during spooky month. HP Lovecraft, this crazy, I have been through such a whirlwind. The I man, no idea. the mythos. The racist. We're covering him. We're doing it. It is, it is like I unlocked a, a, a puzzle box of his making and peered into his life and just was hit in the face with so many insane notions. The biggest one being, I'll say it right now, H.P. Lovecraft is weirdly also like the proto 4chan troll. And I know that sounds crazy, but I will explain myself once we get to his early career it's stuff. 4chan troll is like weirdly specific, but he is absolutely of the Internet generation before the Internet even existed. Following sure. his life story, I could find an analog like every step of the way to... Someone that was raised on the computer. Yeah, like the incel, <laughs> incel <QAnon> guy. gamer, like <laughs> yeah. uh, weeb, like all the various ways that uh, dissatisfaction in a dude's life can manifest itself. Like I, even in my own life story, if there's so many moments in 
uh, Lovecraft's life where I was like, I've been there, bro. Um, I didn't write a 6,000 word essay about how much I hate foreigners, but you know, I definitely felt that way. Like I, not racist, but I felt alienated and like, <laughs> there it is. You got it. Everybody. Jake's uh, racist too. <laughs> shit up. Oh, they got me guys. I got to go to racism jail. Uh, no, Jake's not racist, but we are just kind of mulling over the fact that it is a difficult property to talk about because they're plushy Cthulhu dolls and everybody loves Cthulhu and Cthulhu this and Cthulhu that. And then also like this guy is like deeply fucking racist and it's, it's just this weird thing to navigate. Uh, and there's more notes to, to this, to the situation. He's also had a pretty rough life, Mm -hmm. um, for sure. And, and there's a lot of like clear lines between who he is and the family that raised him and how he came to be the the person that he came to be. It's like all that fascinating stuff. And then also this universe is, I'm going to say is, is to me really spectacular. And I don't know when I first learned of Cthulhu or any of that. I think I, I, I really actually dug into the whole mythos and everything. I think just bored at, at like an office job. I was just like, what is the actual deal with this? Cause it, it's one of those things that is just became like, and everybody knows this, this trope thing before I ever, I, I have no, in other words, I have no memory of discovering it. Like I have no memory of before Cthulhu existed in my life. So right off the bat, one of the key things that makes uh, the Lovecraft mythos, the Cthulhu mythos, like as prominently uh, kind of everywhere in our culture is that it kind of became public domain in the exact moment that like, as we keep talking about that loot crate culture, that Funko Pop culture came into being. So at the exact second where people were celebrating all of these obscure nerdy things and kind of Everything from Doctor Who to comic books to anime became these like badges of cultural identification. Cthulhu had all the chains ripped off of it. So like uh, anybody that grew up, uh, you know, reading sci-fi magazines, anybody that grew up uh, with weird tales and amazing stories and all of these like pulp fiction uh, kind of fantasy stories... Lovecraft was always there, but it was always kind of this like quaint little side thing, this kind of, um, uh, I don't know, let's say uh, the kinks to, you know, uh, J.R.L. Tolkien's Beatles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like uh, it was kind of it was like one or two layers below the surface for uh, people, not really part of mass media. But then as geek culture became mass media, Lovecraft got a huge boost. And so it it really is everywhere. And I mean, let's, you know, let's gush a little. It's a truly unique aesthetic. It is a truly unique scenario. I I really do love it. And I I definitely remember reading The Call of Cthulhu uh, or listening to it on audiobook or something like while again at my shitty day job or something. And I do remember being so drawn in by by the the cults that were being communicated with in their dreams by the um disturbing like uh, by 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 actual actually by concepts by the concept of ex- discovering something that that's geometry was so foreign to mankind that it it, it was incon- inconceivable and <laughs> and then and then you know uh, seeing something that's so massive and so terrifying that you literally go insane just at the sight of it. Like that, that just that basic concept alone. I can see that. Like I can, 
if I concentrate enough and I try to visualize it enough, I can like feel a little bit of that. That's like you know one of mean? the huge tricks to a good Lovecraft story is that he's more interested in describing the effect of the mon- of the creature on mm-hmm. the narrator than actually describing the creature. Or if he is describing the creature, he's describing these like disparate elements that can't possibly fit together in exactly. a way that like your your brain is straining trying to like build an image of something that could be so horrible. And so in effect, whatever you've come up with is the perfect thing to summon those feelings in you. And it's a very um, mixed with the kind of storytelling devices of uh, letters and articles and reportage and yes. journals from supposed men of science. It's always someone with authority. Which, by the way, leads perfectly into board games and video games, which is, of course, a very specifically nerdy thing, which is why Cthulhu, I feel like, is such a big deal for the RPG genre, for, you know, like actual tabletop role-playing games, rather, and for board games and things like that. I, like, have my Arkham, whatever it's called, uh, board game, um... What is that called again? Oh, whatever. But I have that game, and uh, it's impossible to play. It's too complicated. But still, it, it's all of these things are great for things you have to visualize, that you have to, you as the reader, you as the player, have to come to and 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 completely realize yourself. Also, Jake, that just speaks towards the monster is always more terrifying when it's not fully revealed, right? When it, when it, as, soon, as soon as you see the monster, you're like, oh, okay. And even Cthulhu, we've got the fucking... You know, the little weeby like dolls and stuff now. And like, uh, it's such a pop culture mainstay. I remember, I remember one of my first memories of Cthulhu in a video game is, uh, whatchamacallit, the game where you write stuff down and it, it, it appears in the game. Scribble what am I knots. talking about? Scribble knots. Scribble knots like, had a Cthulhu and he would fuck Cthulhu. everything up. <laughs> He'd fuck everything up, but it's just so, it's, it is, it is very inherent in nerd culture and, it is such a fascinating thing to explore. And then the person himself is just all over the place. <laughs> Jake, it's I'm talking about cancel culture. Like I just it will Lovecraft one day be canceled. I will mean, it happen? It's pretty much it's you even met, we we couldn't even get past it. You have to mention it. You ha- there's I mean, even OK, so in uh, even in modern, you know, the uh, Lovecraft country just came out. On yes. HBO, Peak Amazing. TV, HBO, and they had to be like within the first five minutes. Oh, you mean that guy that wrote the N-word essay of yeah. which there are several? Yeah, it's it's not just like a little bit. It's a fucking lot of it. And that's why it, it must be addressed so, so much so. And why I think I was slightly hesitant about getting into this episode, because like, I don't want to sit here and talk about racist shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, per it's se. Just, one of the things <laughs> about it that, like, it's just, there's one thing about, like, of its era or, you know, oh, it was of its time, which, uh, depending on your particular ethics and politics, is not an excuse at all, but we're not getting into that, is that, like, it's it is at the forefront. It is constantly there. It's lit- just even the baseline white supremacy of that era's, like, thrilling adventurer, explorer, Rudyard Kipling kind of shit, like... It's so bad that, like, I discovered a 6,000-word essay of his called Cats and Dogs, where it's, this is supposed to be his fucking Dave Barry, slice of life, cute, like, just fun, falderall essay about why cats are better than dogs. And within the first paragraph, he's already uh, comparing, like, 
immigrants, black people, Jews, and the Swedes with animals. Like it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously crazy. his cat him the cat himself that he is talking about is named the N-word. Like it's just even in ones even in air in places where you're not like you know, where you're ready for it, it'll still pop up in like weird ways in like Call of Cthulhu. He's just constantly referencing like, like uh, Haitians in like horrible terms. He refers to a cult of degenerate Eskimos at one point. Like he genuinely, truly deep in his heart believes in the supremacy of the white English American uh, way of New England way of life and is just not, he is aggressive about it. Yeah, it, it's pretty wild. Uh, so for this week, what did you, what Lovecraft stuff have you, did you actually engage with? Uh, uh, Dagon. Um, oh, Dagon's I, fun. Dagon's actually Dagon's real. awesome. The one, one story that I, I wish I could love more. I really do love it, but the name of the fucking cat sucks <laughs> in it is, um, the rats in the walls. I actually, that was another one, like another one I listened to at work and I was like, man, this would be really great if it didn't have a fucking weird racist cat name. Uh, but either way, uh, th there was so many stories. I mean, obviously call it Cthulhu. You have to go back to that. You've got to check out, uh, I mean, all like, the cats of Ulthar, um, the statement of Randolph Carter. I mean, by the way, all of this stuff is very beautifully done on YouTube with animations to go mm -hmm. along with the narration of the stories. It's very consumable at this point. There's plenty of places to check it out. Uh, also, yeah, the, the the Dunwich Horror. Shadow over Innsmouth. Yeah, the Shadow Out of Time. Um, all, all, yeah, just a lot of stuff. The Hound. Um, a lot of stuff. And you watched Lovecraft Country. Uh, I actually watched uh, Color it. Out of Space. Nice. I meant to do that before it's, this episode. Oh, I haven't you got to watch it after the fact. Will, it is it is a it. good time. Uh, yeah. Nick Cage is making some very important choices in that movie. <laughs> I need to see it so bad. I I, I was going to try to catch it uh, last night, but I just ran out of gas. But it's, either way, uh, it's actually kind of weird. Uh, color out of space. Someone I saw like someone talk about this and it was like so in color out of space, which, again, I watched as a Nick Cage movie. Uh, there's yeah. a. A meteorite lands on a small farming and a small farmer's like estate. Uh, the local like water table scientist notices that it's affecting like the animals and plants and people around it. And the horror is described as this otherworldly color that cannot be described. That is so beyond human reckoning that it like warps the flesh and creates like all these horrible effects. And the effects the way it like mutates life, the way it like burns people, the way it like kind of degrades organic matter is weirdly analogous to like radiation, like yes. the atom bomb, like, and all this, you know, before, you know, this is all before world war two. And like, even then, like the, the form of light that is so terrible that it degrades flesh was like born from his mind. Like it's yeah, interesting. Which is There's all this very fascinating. Shit. Well, and and he will have a history uh steeped in the sciences and a lot of his work also is connected to why he was bad at science, which is really fascinating to learn about. Shall we jump into it, Jake? There's so much to cover. I have so many pages of notes. I'm a little scared. I received a letter from my uncle who said that do not go to the Arctic. It, it's super, it's shit, it's shitty there. I will, you will pee pee and poo poo yourself. I'm pee pee poo pooing so badly because I, I went crazy. And so naturally I 
went to the Arctic, and there I saw several weird hexagons. Hexagons so bizarre, made from a rock that, like, even though I could tell it was rock, it was, like, weird rock. Like, like I don't know what kind of rock it was, so I went crazy, and I pee-peed and poo-pooed myself. So what Jake means to say is, H.P. Lovecraft is an American writer of weird and horror fiction, known for creating the Cthulhu mythos, a shared fictional universe, the name of which was derived from the central creature in Lovecraft's seminal short story, The Call of Cthulhu. Let's get into the tiny boy's story. So here we go. Lovecraft, born in 1890 in Rhode Island. His grandfather has a silly name. It is Whipple Van Buren Phillips. And he also, his grandfather, owned a ton of land in Rhode Island. He actually renamed this land to Green, essentially made his own town uh, because he was so rich and had several successful business ventures. So he was super loaded. So little Lovecraft grew up quite well to do. This will not remain the case, though. Uh, This uh, grandfather also founded the Masonic Lodge in Green. And this is a possible thread to the secret societies that Lovecraft would later include in his work, potentially. He was very inspired by his grandfather, which we'll talk about. His father, Winfield, however, um, is a traveling salesman who um, is the first tragedy essentially to strike Lovecraft's life because his father ends up having a psychotic episode in a Chicago hotel in 1893 and is committed to a hospital after he had been, quote, doing and saying strange things for a year. He dies in this hospital after five years, and the, it is popularly co- believed that the psychosis was brought on by a bout with syphilis. Yep, late stage syphilis. Traveling salesman, you say? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Right. Something that Lovecraft, by the way, would would claim was completely not that. Um, it's unclear whether Lovecraft was lying to protect his father, or wh- or whether he was lied to to protect him. Uh, so Lovecraft ends up living with his mother and maternal aunts and maternal grandparents, and they're all super racist. Uh, <laughs> and these are the folks Lovecraft seems to inherited his racism from early on, especially since they seem to be so obsessed with, quote, preserving the bloodline that Whipple Van Buren married and had five children with his first cousin. And oh, they had a <laughs> oh that's <laughs> and- neat. Yeah, they, they had a lot of wealth, but it is starting to dwindle around this time. But Would either you way, say they had time, a little bit of the Innsmouth look at that point? A little bit, a little bit. And uh, the the the, um, the mother is pampering the shit out of little Lovecraft at this point. With the father away, she is just the ultimate helicopter mom from everything that I have read about. Uh, she would never let him out of her sight. Lovecraft recalled his mother as, quote, permanently stricken with grief as well. Um, And uh, at this time, his grandfather becomes, quote, the center of my entire universe uh, through this period. He's, by the way, Lovecraft wrote a ton of letters, kept journals, super documented his life for most of it. So we do have a pretty clear understanding of his whole deal. Like Uh, over 100,000 pieces of correspondence within his lifetime, which is insane. Lovecraft, who was three at the time, was already proficient at reading and writing. His grandfather encouraged a love of classic literature and English poetry and also delighted in telling him original weird tales of, quote, winged horrors and, quote, deep, low moaning sounds. Uh, Lovecraft said, I never heard oral weird tales except from my grandfather, who, observing my taste in reading, used to devise all sorts of impromptu original yarns about black woods, unfathomed caves, winged horrors, like the night gaunts of my dreams, about which I used to tell him, old witches with sinister cauldrons and deep, low moaning sounds. The night gaunts. Now we 
we've made it to the Night Gaunts, um, which also brings us to Lovecraft's most likely having sleep paralysis throughout his life. And he would have these horrific images appear to him. Sleep paralysis, of course, you're like awake, but you're not. And you see horrific things, but you can't like move or do anything about it. And it's like absolutely terrifying. It's definitely something I'm so happy I'm not stricken with. <laughs> As I have talked to other people who've had what? sleep paralysis. You've sounds- never awoken at an ungodly twilight hour and seen the dark presence in your room? Absolutely not. As you try Thank to scream and nothing can escape your lips? Weird. You're the weird one, Holden. <laughs> no night ter- terrors, nothing like that. Uh, other literary influences were The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, illustrated by Gustav Doré, 1001 Nights, which was a gift from his mother, Thomas uh, Bullfinch's Age of Fable, and Ovid's Metamorphosis. Ovid's Metamorphosis was a big, big one for him. He was definitely into like the, the pantheon of gods, Egyptian gods, that sort of thing. Who wasn't as a kid? I loved Egypt as a kid. Egypt and dinosaurs. That's all I cared about when I was a little stupid kid. Either way, his grandmother passes away. Uh, and that's in 1896. And this, again, has a profound effect on Lovecraft as it sent the family into, quote, a gloom from which it never fully recovered around the age of five. This is also a time at which he started having reoccurring nightmares that we just talked about, the night gaunts, that would, quote, whirl me through space at a sickening rate of speed, the while fretting and impelling me with their detestable tridents. Uh, he also described them as black, lean, rubbery things with bared, barbed tails, bat wings, and no faces at all. So like faceless devil boys, essentially, were haunting him. But either way, he first starts writing at the age of seven with poems that retold the Odyssey and mythological stories of the like, having been quite obsessed with the Roman pantheon of gods. And he also denied Christianity early on which is interesting. At the age of five, he did this. After being told Santa doesn't exist, he responded with asking, why, but God is not equally a myth. <laughs> and, and and so now we're eight-year-old Lovecraft. And so he's living with his good, his grandpa Whipple Van Buren. He's, uh, you know, there's a pall of uh, mourning across uh, his aunts and his mother, who is uh, doting on him, uh, letting him do whatever he wants. He eats ice cream for dinner, I'm told. And uh, also she's weirdly like cold to him and like will never touch him physically. It's so bizarre. So she won't let him out of his sight, buys him whatever he wants, pampers him, overprotects him. And at the same time, she also wanted a daughter and um, she tried to apparently feminize him to the point that as a child, he would insist that I'm a little girl. Um, And also super heavily criticized his appearance. One visitor recalled, one visitor recalled her speaking repeatedly about how he was quote, so hideous that he (laughs) hid from everyone and did not like to walk upon the streets where people could gaze on him. And, and that is the, I think that is what creates this, this bizarre character in, in the real world, I think, largely, is his mother and his mother's insane approach to parenting <laughs> that makes no sense to me whatsoever. It is so crazy. Um, but yeah, yeah, that that that's going to come into play for the rest of his life, the way that she treated him. Uh, while this is going on, he's also getting really into the sciences. She buys him, by the way, all the chemistry kits that he could ask for, um so that he can play with his sciences in the attic. Uh, he, using a gelatin-based printing method, too, he produced the Rhode Island Journal of Astronomy in 1902, which ran for 69 issues and later added the Scientific Gazette, which mostly dealt with the subject of chemistry. 
Um, and, you know, at school, he, he's only, you know, he's very cold to people. He's only making friends with people who are into the shit he's into. He's that kid. He's that kid. I'll just say that over and over again this episode, Jay. There's an uh, anecdote where, like, uh, local school children would follow him out to an empty field because he was just spending all of his time, like, gazing out at a telescope, not talking to anybody. And only when, like, a young girl would actually walk up and be like, hey, what are you doing? Would he just start blabbering about all this cool space shit and not, like, stop? And she had to be like, uh, okay, never mind. And He's that alone. kid, guys. Also, though, he was terrible at it. He he loved chemistry so much, but the math uh, involved was impenetrable to him. He also loved astronomy. And that, of course, comes into play in tons of his work with uh, the cosmic horror that he's going to later write. But uh, Lovecraft said it was algebra which formed the bugbear. Geometry was not so bad, but the whole thing disappointed me bitterly, for I was then intending to pursue astronomy as a career. And of course, advanced astronomy is simply a massive mathematics. That was the first major setback I ever, I ever received. The first time I was ever brought up short against a consciousness of my own limitations. It was clear to me that I hadn't brains enough to be an astronomer and that uh, that was a pill I couldn't swallow with equity. And this, of course, is going to lead to that trope of forbidden knowledge in so much of his work, something that upon learning it, you you, you your brain can't even conceive it. It's it's again, in, to use a word I just use impenetrable. It is weirdly appropriate when you think about that, like sinking feeling in your stomach when you like get a calculus test in school that you didn't study enough for and it's indecipherable to you. And like all these symbols and numbers and all the meaning to you is clouded and like you can yep. barely begin to perceive of it. How that exact feeling of a schoolboy who isn't prepared for a math test immediately can be transferred to confronting the elder gods at the, at the edge of the void. I'm floored at this knowledge. This the, the, when, when those dots connected in this research, I was just so, of course. And of course, also, I don't know if you had this, but I remember growing up, uh, there was that nerd that was like bad at being a nerd. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He almost felt bad oh, for Oh, that him. was me. That was, <laughs> it was like. That was me. Damn, not only are you a nerd, but you're like not even good at the shit that nerds are good at. <laughs> The I still haven't beaten Hades. I've been I'm on like run number 30. I still haven't made it to ups. Anyway, dude, I'm with you on that. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. I Honestly, I feel for this guy at this point. Um, he's, you know, raised in a very sheltered upbringing. 
he's deeply passionate about these things. He has this whole mythology about his young self as this mature, wizened man of science. And yet when the rubber hits the road, it's just not going to work out for him like that. And then at that point, like, what even are you? That's yeah. like a huge blow. That's, you know, this is where uh, he was already of a very nervous constitution, I believe, as uh, it's kind of said. Uh, he was prone to various uh, illnesses of the spirit. Yes, we'll get into his many illnesses throughout high school and things. These issues that he was having, again, connected, I think, to the mother and the way that she treated him. And I think the way that he needed to be in order to get attention or to get whatever he wanted. But either way, also at the age of eight, he discovered probably his biggest literary influence, Edgar Allan Poe. Lovecraft said, Then I struck Edgar Allan Poe. It was my downfall. And at the age of eight, I saw the blue firmament of Argos and Sicily darkened by the miasmal exhalations of the tomb. Uh, lots of tombs in Lovecraft. That was uh, that was a very fancy way of saying I stopped reading all that fancy classical Greek literature and antiquity stuff and immediately dove into horror. Yes, exactly. So this is where by 1900, the grandfather Whipple Van Buren Phillips's business ventures were suffering with his largest hitting a catastrophic failure in 1904. This is due to a dam his company was building collapsing for Twice. a second time. <laughs> Yes, Lovecraft said, actually, listen, your dam collapses one time. Uh, That's a setback. But, you know, you got to spend money to make money. If your dam collapses twice. Shame on me. Yeah, exactly. You're fucked. Um, And Lovecraft said, actual demise did set in when I was about 10 years old so that I saw a steady dropping of servants, horses and other adjuncts of domestic management. Even before my grandfather's death, a sense of peril and falling off was strong within me, so that I felt a kinship to pose gloomy heroes with their broken fortunes. And shortly after, uh, Whipple ends up dying of a stroke at the age of 70. And later that year, his mother had to move them to a small duplex, which marked one of the darkest times of his life. And there's a lot of, I would say... um, I would say uh, uh, over-exaggeration on Lovecraft's part of how dismal his life really was. I'm sure it, I'm sure it must be a wake-up call to go from an estate with horses and servants to a still, I, I believe, a five-room apartment. Um, yeah. Not that shabby. And an attic that he would call his own to, do st- uh, to read and do science stuff and be a nerd in. Um, but he is, like, suicidal over it. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it's, like, okay. so extreme. So... Already, it's so easy to draw these parallels to like, you know, the very to our very modern narratives. But here's this guy that had a dream of a certain lifestyle that he felt almost uh, entitled to. He was part of this New England aristocracy, this pure blood, literally like inbred English stock uh, in a idyllic house in an idyllic part of of America with its very strict values and very strict culture. And he was a man of science, this bold new era. He was going to be this man of tomorrow, merging the the nobility of old with the daring knowledge of the new. And it all falls apart around him very quickly. The, the career that he had in mind isn't going to be attainable. The wealth and privilege that he had was kind of, uh, you know, leaked, dropped away from him. And even his own family that at once like made him, you know, built him up and tore him down at the same time, created this very anxious, like, you know, it's almost like I would, if you wanted to build an anxious, angry, depressed man, (laughs) 
this is what yes. you would do to him to create this. And in an, and a lot of ways, you know, this is where a lot of uh, young men kind of end up these days. A lot of young men, you know, think that they're going to have the picket fence and the hot wife and the three and a half kids and, you know, circumstances and their own limitations kind of get in the way. And that frustration ends up manifesting itself in a lot of, uh, you know, if in uh negative, uh, I'd say antisocial ways. Uh, it's honestly the harshest. It feels like the harshest critics of Lovecraft, uh, besides people that are absolutely like, listen, I don't care how many space boogeymen he invented. The dude was a piece of shit. <laughs> or the people that honestly knew where he was coming from and like felt they had to get over it and seeing him wallow in those negative emotions are like some of the most angry like virulent critics of Lovecraft. So it's around the time he's entering high school. He's in and out of 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 high school due to quote near breakdowns he was suffering. He would later blame his vulnerable nature on and quote ancestry prone to headaches, nerve exhaustion, and breakdowns, as well as being weaned too early to being a bottle baby, uh, which is a weird thing he focused on. And but apparently, but but it was more likely due to his mother's overbearing and contradictory parenting. He also did make some friends during this time. He also does pretty well academically, specifically in the fields of chemistry and physics during this time. But so, regardless, in, I, there's an interview with Alan Moore, who is one of the biggest Lovecraft heads in modern writing at this point. He had uh, his Providence comic series that ran for 12 issues and really got into the lore of Lovecraft. The dude genuinely loves H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. And he's done extensive research on the guy. You know, he's read every piece of criticism, every biography. And he points out that, like, um, you know, he, he laid it on thick about this period of his, of his life. He would refer to himself as, like, an, a cripple, as, you know, this nervous wreck, this unfortunate wretch who wasn't capable of anything. But, like, he was a robust, you know, he was a big, healthy guy. He would take people on uh, hikes around Providence and, you know... He was, you know, always seeing the world. He was always like going on trips. He was like living his life. But in his head, he was still a failure. He was like he just wasn't there had to be something wrong with him. Why else would he not achieving like he wanted to achieve? Which honestly, I totally connect to that. And I definitely connect to uh, the idea of having to pivot to starting out like I'm going to be, you know, in his case, I'm going to be a, a scientist. I'm going to do chemistry and astro astrology astronomy rather and and really pursue those to you know in a way he pivoted to astrology in his own fucked up fashion yeah he kind of <laughs> did pivot to astrology in his own fucked up fashion but yeah and and having to say no actually i should pursue writing because i can't handle the math like i told i've done that uh for mm -hmm. sure career-wise there's definitely stuff like that that i totally get uh either way um his in terms of his own writing uh his earliest work was a restyling of the odyssey in which he took 12,000 lines of the original and condensed it to 88 lines which he bound in a book himself at the age of 7 what a fun nerd but either way it was during the period of 1905 to 1908 that he produced two works which dealt in the subject matter he would later become most known for the first was The Beast in the Cave, written at 14 years old, which was about a man who was separated from his guide while visiting Mammoth Cave, 
Cave, which is a real destination in Kentucky, and uh, encounters a strange beast in the dark whom he attacks with a stone. The guide later finds both of them and discovers, using a torchlight, that the creature is in fact a pale, deformed human who got lost in the cave several years ago. What a twist! The second was The Alchemist, written at 18, and was about a man named Count Antoine, whose ancestor was responsible for the death of a dark wizard, whose son swore revenge to the family of the killer cursing them to die at the age of 32, which turned out to happen until Antoine was the only one left in the family. And while exploring the family estate, he finds a secret passage that leads to Charles himself, who has been hiding and using an elixir of life to fulfill his family's curse generation after generation. This, by the way, is one of the rare instances that sort of a sort of magic is incorporated into Lovecraft's work. Mostly he deals in the, you know, arcane sciences and aliens and things of that nature to create his supernatural horrors. Then in 1908, just before high school graduation, Lovecraft suffered a mysterious health crisis, which he described as a cor- in a correspondence as a, quote, nervous collapse and, quote, a sort of breakdown, which he blamed on the stress of high school, though he also seemed to enjoy his time there. So it's kind of bizarre. But either way, he also wrote this in a letter. I was and am prey to intense headaches, insomnia, and general nervous weakness, which prevents my continuous application to anything. He also suffered from nervous tics in school, an example being that sometimes he just jumped out of his seat for no reason, which was later attributed to him having Korea Minor, a disorder characterized by rapid jerking movements affecting the face, hands, and feet that is predominant in adolescence. So he never graduates high school. Uh, nor does he attend college. He was supposed to go to Brown. He ends up not going. Brown uh, being he, the Ivy League school that's in Providence, Rhode Island. Yes. And he doesn't go to any school ever again. He withdraws from society in general. He goes through periods where he, quote, could hardly bear to see or speak to anyone and like to shut out the world by pulling down dark shades and using artificial light. I know he's an incel. We don't have to focus on it so much. But either way. Very few of his uh, activities from late 1908 to 1913 are recorded. We do not know uh, very much. This is a period of financial decline due to a failed business venture of his uncle that cost the mother, uh, his mother, a lot of their remaining wealth. Just things are not good. Things are very bad. It should be noted that one of uh, in 1912, he did manage to publish his uh, first uh, major piece, a poem called Providence in 2000 AD, a jaunty uh, kind of satiric <laughs> poem about the city of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, that he dearly loved, uh, as it would appear in the year 2000. Um, oh, so just fun flying cars and things of that nature, right? Yeah, Jay? yeah. Let me, let me read, let me read <laughs> a, a, a bit of it. Um, there stands the ruin of a brick-built pile, the ancient board of trade, the people say, Left from the times before the Hebrew sway. (laughs) Across the bridge where fragrant waters run, I shaped my journey towards the setting sun. The curving junction first engaged my gaze. My my guidebook calls it Finkelstein's Crossways. (laughs) So I I, I believe that. He then lays into the Irish, the Swedish, Mm -hmm. the Turkish, um, uh, the Irish again. uh, (laughs) Really, uh, uh, he hates the Polish. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) 
uh, and of course, um, last of my kind, a lone unhappy man. My name is Smith. I'm an American. <laughs> More like an American, am I right? Oof. Either way, uh, he also started writing letters to editors in pulp and weird fiction magazines, especially one called Argosy, which was actually the first American pulp magazine. And there was one notable one in particular written in critique of a writer for the rag. This is, by the way, when I mentioned the troll part, this is where the troll part comes in, which I just thought was like so it's, Okay, this wild. is amazing. This is yeah. like, <laughs> so he's in this depressive episode. He hates himself. He's, uh, you know, has an over his overbearing, depressed mother is like making life with him untenable. He's writing racist screeds um, and, you know, in the form of poetry. So he's just this ball of like just frustration and alienation. And what kicks him out of it? What is the thing? That like finally gives him the joie de vivre to like apply himself in life. Shitting on another writer. Uh, he uh, there's this particular um, uh, one letter that he writes in critique of a writer for the rag named Fred Jackson, who he felt wrote stories that were quote trivial, effeminate, and in places coarse, and felt the characters displayed quote delicate passions and emotions proper to. Um, I'm not going to say that word, an an anthropoid apes. This marked the first appearance of what would later be termed as a troll in the internet era uh, and sparked a year-long feud with the in the letters section between Lovecraft, the handful of supporters that came out to, to of the word woodwork to defend him, and those that loved Jackson's work, one of which stood out as Lovecraft's rival named John Russell, who would often reply to Lovecraft in verse and whom Lovecraft felt was a worthy advers- adversary. So it's... Specifically, the writer, uh, Fred Jackson, uh, did, like, romance stories, like, girly, like, touchy-feely, like, romance stories that he felt were triflings, unworthy of publication. It's literally... The f- it's that guy on Twitter that gets mad when something gets like, uh, you know, diversified. It's just like yeah. this. I don't like this. This isn't for me. This is bullshit. This is poorly written. Captain Marvel. No women in the movie need necessary in the Marvel universe. Yeah. yeah it's, that guy. And so like then getting into it in the letters column, which is the same, like getting that rush of engagement of actual contact. The same way that someone can get on Twitter or Facebook when they, like, just rail into something. And in the same way that that can happen to that person, this feud catches the eye of Edward F. Doss, the head editor of the United Amateur Press Association, and invites the two into the organization. Lovecraft said, With the advent of United, I obtained a renewed will to live, a renewed sense of existence as other than a superfluous weight and found a sphere in which I could feel that my efforts were not wholly futile. For the first time, I could imagine that my clumsy gropings after art were a little more than faint cries lost in the unlistening void. So this works out for him. This <laughs> this totally just works, and he ends up getting a job. So uh, the Amateur Press Association and the American Amateur Press Movement is this very unique kind of thing that was kind of born before the advent of like uh, commercialized pulp uh, fiction and, uh, you know, comic books and all these things. It was like almost like forums or blogs or YouTube or Twitch, this kind of insular community of uh, fan generated content with high, high levels of interaction between creators where like 
half of, it was uh, instead of a you know a major publisher with a printing press, there would be this kind of ad hoc network of distributors collecting the works, editors, writers. Uh, you know, you would have to subscribe to the publications because they were in such small print runs, and it really felt more. It was more of a community. This. He basically discovered the Something Awful forums or 4chan yes. or a Twitch streamer. Like he found a nexus and a community of like-minded individuals and was able to forge an identity. He actually talks to, you know, in many articles, writes about being a, you know, as a member of the amateur press community or like my fellow amateurs. Like it's a, you know. Yeah, it's he advocated as- amateurism versus commercialism. Essentially, he was, uh, again... He's like the proto everything. He was the proto like like you're a bunch of sellouts and like we're doing the real shit over here. Gamers which is like rise amazing. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and it was very much so against commercialism. And I know we're being very we're being very dismissive, dismissive. I'm sure lots of people that are listening to this right now uh, are identify themselves as gamers, as like fans and all these things. And again, we're making very we're not trying to call anyone out specifically. It's just the in broad in broad sway, yeah. swaths, the it is kind of insane how the cultural fucking shadows line up. Yeah, it's really it just really was amazing to find out. And I also just want to say, like. His work is prolific. It inspired so many people. I'm not taking, I'm, I don't want to take any of that away, but there is just some very humorous connections, uh, uh, comparisons to be drawn here. I, I think mean, well. the, the same kind of angry people, the same kind of like uh, internet people that we are keep referring back to have made incredible games and novels and films and YouTube channels themselves. It, it's just the cult. Yeah, I, like I keep saying the cultural pathway, even though it's a completely different era, the, the twists and turns are weirdly familiar. It's the story of America, and it existed. I think we think this is new, and it actually existed back in the early 1900s, it just in a different format, and I just yeah. cannot get over it. But either way, it is now late 1914. He is appointed to the Department of Public Criticism in the United Amateur Press Association. By the way, how many people in, uh, in, tw- in the Twitterverse would love to be appointed to the Department of Public <laughs> Criticism? But either way, uh, this is the uh, 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 UAPA, the United Amateur Press Association. And this is when he got all his uh, all into his feels about the superiority of the English language and hateful of, quote, Americanisms and, quote, slang, which was steeped in xenophobic and racist arguments as he felt the, quote, national language was being ruined by immigrants. And in 1915, He made his way to vice president and then president of the UAPA, and this is when he's able to appoint a bunch of other board members that share this view of the superiority of classic English over American English, and then heavily criticizes uh, 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 American people for going against that. Uh, Okay, this this quote, again, it's just amazing. I'm basically savoring this quote because it's a pretty... uh, like emblematic sign of his level of cultural supremacy and hatred in his heart without actually having too many actual slurs in it. So I feel comfortable reading it. Um, This is uh, on the idea of, you know, that you shouldn't use American slang in proper literature, in proper writing. 
The idea that slang-infested literature is more readable and pleasing than that which conforms to refined tastes is nearly parallel to that of the Italian peasant immigrant, who fondly considers his soiled and flaming kerchief and other greasy but gaudy apparel far more beautiful than the spotless white linen and plain neat suit of the American for whom he works. While good English may in unskillful hands sometimes become monotonous, this defect cannot justify the introduction of a dialect gathered from thieves, plowboys, and chimney sweeps. <laughs> the fucking, the, the haughty, just shit-smearing grin that he must have had when he wrote fucking plowboys and chimney sweeps. And here's another anecdote that... I think kind of frames gives you a good framework for um, this this person and especially in this point of his life he heavily criticizes America's hesitancy to get involved in World War One because uh, he wants them to go help England England the 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 greatest place ever the the most important place in existence and uh, Lovecraft tries to enlist in the army himself but mommy won't let him uh, so he passes the physical exam demonstrating mm-hmm. that actually. Uh, although all these claims about these horrible health issues aside, uh, he's physically fit to serve in the army at that time. He said, quote, how, uh, my mother has threatened to go to any lengths, legal or otherwise, if I do not reveal all the ills which unfit me for the army. And, quote, since she knew that only by rare chance could a weakling like myself survive the rigorous routine of camp life, uh, which is, is so upsetting. <laughs> Got to be so upsetting. This mother just seems like the worst. So, like, and it, literally the first step he's taken to like makes to do something bold to like set out on his own. And she just like cuts it out from underneath him, assuming that he wouldn't have just become liquid fucking slime at Verdun. But like, well, the Americans weren't at Verdun. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? She gets a doctor too to write some note to 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 get him out of the army. I mean, just how. How how pathetic would you feel in that situation? I, I it's it's just this mom and and so now Lovecraft and his mother are codependent but fucking hate each other. It's got to be the strangest relationship ever. And in 1918, Susie has a psychotic breakdown, so she lived with her sister for a time, then was admitted to Butler Hospital, the same in which her husband had died. Uh, Clara Hess, Susie's neighbor, said, "I remember that Mrs. Lovecraft." spoke to me about weird and fantastic creatures that rushed out from behind buildings and from corners at dark, and that she shivered and looked about apprehensively as she told her story. So a terrifying end for her. And uh, though this does lead to some nervous attacks for Lovecraft due to abandonment, he does embrace his newfound freedom and got a lot more outgoing and adventurous after she was committed. A lot of things happen relatively quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. He starts getting he starts publishing his own stories in the uh, amateur press journal, uh, including Mm -hmm. Dagon, which I feel like is the first genuine uh, entry in the Cthulhu mythos. Yes. And uh, there's a really great uh, reading with, you know, kind of an illustrated video version of this story on YouTube. That I watched the you, same. If you want to dip your toe into Lovecraft, this is a great first step. But uh, in Dagon, an American uh, soldier is, or sailor, is uh, captured by uh, a German uh, ship. It is then, he escapes and winds up capsized on what is a infinite sea of black slime that he believes to be like the ocean floor having risen. 
there he finds all these dark, weird hieroglyphics um, of fishmen and various aquatic beings that clearly have made a society beneath the ocean surface. And they all seem to worship this terrifying deity known as Dagon, which is uh, he clearly loaned it from early Canaanite religions and, you know, um, Mesopotamian. You know, if he was into antiquity and classical uh, literature, he would have come upon that word before. Um, And it contains the idea that um, this was all being written in the form of a note by the narrator and the big twist. Yeah, fuck it. The twist at the end is that it turns out it was a suicide note and what he had seen was too grim for the idea that just beneath the surface, these horrors are ready to just take claim of the world at any moment is too much for him to bear. Uh, This is like prime love. When you think of a classic Lovecraftian story, this is like it. Um, Those writings kind of gives him a little bit more and his position at the Amateur Press Society gives him a little bit of juice, gives him a little bit of status in this circle. And with his mother's death, it's he's free to actually go to literary conventions run by the Amateur Press Association. Mm -hmm. And so there, uh, while giving a talk about um, some um, something that he's grumpy about, I forget which one he meets what would become his future wife. Yes. Uh, Lovecraft meets Sonia Green at a writer's convention. She was born in the Ukraine and got to America in 1892. She had been married previously at 16. She was 19 when she met HP and had already had a son who died at three months and a daughter. The previous husband uh, had taken his own life before they met. Uh, Sonia is a well-off woman. Very important fact because uh, she was a successful hat store business manager, and uh, she gave Lovecraft some stability financially so that he could pursue his writings. Uh, Sonia fell for him um, at a speech and um, really had to do most of the legwork here, not surprisingly. She had to initiate everything uh, in terms of them dating and getting married and having sex. Uh, The... They married in secret as Lovecraft uh, had shitty racist aunts, uh, anti-Semitic aunts, and she was Jewish. They then moved to Sonia's home in New York. Lovecraft was, and by the way, super racist and anti-Semitic, even in the writings you quoted earlier. Mm-hmm. But Sonia gets a pass. And uh, some certain will say that certain people that he became acquainted with, uh, he, he would he was able to push his racist and anti-Semitic sentiments aside for specific characters. It's okay. He dated a Jewish girl. He's not, (laughs) it's fine. Um, The, it's literally, he is supposedly never said, I love you to her. Uh, She had to give him books about romance and physical intimacy to like guide him into how it's supposed to work. Yeah. It was almost like a professional relationship in in, in certain ways. And I think this, this is probably due to the fact that he needed to fill the void of his of his mother's uh, absence with something, and also that you know he just he had all these concepts of what a gentleman is and what a proper white English gentleman does in the world, and and mm-hmm. a, that gentleman would definitely take a wife. So it just definitely feels very professional. Going back to his writings too, we should mention a couple other things that he puts out. His actually his first published work in the UAPA was The Alchemist. And this was uh, due to the encouragement of his lifelong friend, W. Paul Cook. He also puts out a story called The Tomb. And The Tomb also is, the, I think, a foundation for tons of his later work. Uh, the Tomb is about a man who becomes obsessed with a rich family's tomb to the point at which he goes insane. It's heavily based uh, on Edgar Allan Poe's work. 
works. It was the first piece of fiction Lovecraft had written in nine years and was published in the March 1922 issue of The Vagrant. Then Kim Dagan. Then there's Beyond the Wall of Sleep, which is told from the perspective of a mental institution intern who witnesses the madness of a patient, which turns out to be possessed by a cosmic spirit seeking revenge against the star Algol, who is finally able to do so once its human host dies and frees it. And this marks the first cosmic story dealing in the unknown of space being a source of horror. So all these foundations being laid down and he's super prolific at this point. He's putting out uh, a bunch of stories, the white ship, the doom that came to Sarnoff, the statement of Randolph Carter, the cats of Ulthar and Celepheus. Uh, and then there's also early stories of the Cthulhu mythos. Dagon isn't specifically tied to the Cthulhu mythos. It's more of like a prototype for the Cthulhu mythos, but it's clearly like the foundation of the whole of the whole thing. But I would say at the very least uh, where uh, the shadow over Innsmouth also refers to fish people and their dark fish gods. And that <laughs> story uh, ties into Cthulhu with um, like literally the, the big chant uh, was it, you know, uh, Cthulhu yeah. Hold on, yeah. I'm gonna look it up because look it's... it up. Give it to me while, while you look that up. Uh... Okay, I'm sorry. Thunguli Magwafna Cthulhu Rile Wagnagel Fatagen Fatagen. You always gotta end with Fatagen. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's... Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. But the earliest uh, earliest stories in the Cthulhu Mythos is the poem Nyarlathotep, which is about that. That creature, that cosmic god that travels around in human form and and causes uh, all the people around this this character to have nightmares and and just creates havoc in the world. Then there's the short story, the crawling chaos and the nameless city. Um, and it's it's in the early 1920s that uh, Weird Tales comes about, a horror and fiction pulp magazine founded by J.C. Henneberger and J.M. Lansinger uh, in late 1922. Its first issue was in March of 1923, and buddies of Lovecraft, Everett McNeil, James F. Morton, and uh, Carl Ashton Smith, whose own work put him alongside Lovecraft as the big three of Weird Tales, along with Robert E. Howard, all convinced him to submit to the magazine. And these friends make up what is called the Calum Club, which has pushed him even further into productivity as they supported his work and were even a bit of an echo chamber for him um, in both positive and negative ways. And man, do you get all these classics in that time, uh, as well as the ones I just mentioned, as well as the Rats in the Wall, facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family, the Hound, the Hound, 
by the way, is the first story that mentions Lovecraft's fictional text, the Necronomicon. And I, I forget that he created the Necronomicon and the, and the concept of this book of the dead that is so paramount in so many horror works that, that it doesn't even seem like it, it was ever owned by anyone. It almost seems like it was something that from folklore, you know? I mean, the way the Necronomicon has been a- adapted into whatever, you know, it just whenever someone just needs a spooky book. Yeah. But it, within the Cthulhu mythos, within Lovecraft, it is like very specifically like the mad Arab wrote this like with yes. dark astronomy. It's like a, it's this forbidden and ant- antiquitous science book of all things. Uh huh. Um are we in Red Hook at this point or not? Uh, not. Uh, yeah, actually, I guess we were about to get there. I was about to talk about uh, Harry Houdini. But you're right. They they have, by the way, at this point moved, I believe, from uh, he has moved from Providence to Red Hook in New York to live with his wife and uh, is submitting all this stuff from there. I believe he has moved at this point. And uh, this is around the time he gains a working relationship with Harry Houdini, who was brought on to Weird Tales for an Ask Houdini column. Lovecraft ends up ghostwriting a story for him titled Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, which was a first-person account of Houdini encountering Egyptian gods that impressed Houdini enough to have Lovecraft write several stories for him. Uh, And he's also getting steady work, some steady work, as a punch-up writer for other people's stories. Houdini, by the way, another Jew that he was okay with. Yeah, exactly. And and But Lovecraft never really made enough money to, like, support himself fully financially. Like, he always needs his family or his mother for uh, the... or I'm sorry, his family or his wife for support. But this is when he hits another downswing in his life as Sonia, his wife, loses her job while falling into poor health. And Lovecraft refuses to get one himself. He feels that he is far too fancy to have a, quote, normal job. A, he, he's, he's, you know, he, he's, he's way too uh, from a rich family to steep that low. And also, you know, his body is weak and he has uh, weird physical issues or at least thinks he does. And so he just cannot be troubled to take on actual employment and uh, continues to just struggle with poverty. Sonia eventually takes a job in Cleveland, leaving Lovecraft in Red Hook, which is a time of misery for him. Uh, Uh, I believe they not only did she leave him in Red Hook, but they he has to move to like an even worse part in an even worse apartment. Yes. And so what was formerly... Fucking, you know, New England uh, aristocracy is now living amongst immigrants, black people, Jews, like all the exact uh, the Irish, the hated Polish, all these people (laughs) who he personally viewed as degrading American culture. He is now no better than them. He's living among them. And, you know, um, again, this kind of this weird uh, uh, cycle of alienation and privilege and anger and self-hatred kind of turning outward to be like, you know, like, no, I'm doing it right. Everyone else is doing it wrong. Um, So many people uh, move to the city and, you know, can't deal with the fact that like, you know, people are cooking with ingredients they don't recognize. And so it smells bad. It smells awful. The, The immigrants stink. Uh, you know, they're they're loud. They're not uh, observing proper uh, manners, but like it's just a different, you know, you're just the idea that you have to adapt to a different culture and not that these thousands of people around you are just like 
ruining what should be the right culture is like just such a common observation. It's such a, you know, it's literally that like you're in America, speak English, like attitude that's just compounded by his own frustrations to the point where like it infected his own writing even more than his previous racism. (laughs) Yes. And this is when he puts out possibly his most xenophobic work yet, which is titled The Horror at Red Hook. And in this story, Red Hook turns out to be a literal gateway to hell with the immigrants referred to as monsters and contagions, among other things. It is just absolutely disgusting. But the whole thing, it is all self-inflicted too. this whole situation uh, you know, that he's in. And I wish I could say he learns like some valuable lesson or from from being put in this situation. But of course, he doesn't. And uh, he was totally offered an editor position at Weird Tales. He turns it down as it would force him to move to Chicago. This is a massive mistake, especially because his replacement is a man named Farnsworth Wright, which uh, Lovecraft had been quite the critic of. So Wright rejects Lovecraft's submissions, uh, largely. Uh, His only lifeline into the publishing world was Weird Tales. It is now snipped. And uh, Farnsworth apparently isn't, like, all that uh, much of a brick wall. No, he's just, like, a little bit more critical, a little bit more hands-on than what he was used to. Lovecraft does not like taking this, this criticism at all. So Farnsworth's the type of editor, apparently, where you would submit something, he'd give notes... Um, he would he would reject your initial submission usually and give you feedback. And but the whole idea was that you would go and revise and then resubmit. And then he would generally usually accept it. Apparently, I don't know completely, but either way, all he had to do was take that editor job and he would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, it would have solved so many. Pro- but again, he had to move to Chicago. And what's in Chicago? Black people and <laughs> Polish people. Oh, not the Polish again. You know what it is, especially because, um, you know, Lovecraft was born from this uh, amateur publishing scene. You know, that's where he finally got his identity from. And the whole idea from that is that, you know, it is the writer above all beyond commercial considerations who should not compromise his work in such a way for mere, you know, uh, uh, publishers and editors and, and commercialism. So like the idea that he was too good, you know, he was too proud to like to change his stories or take editors notes really just bit him in the ass. Yeah, super hard. But either way, uh, in March of 1927, he writes The Color Out of Space, and this is published uh, September of that same year. Uh, This story tells the tale of the fictional town of Arkham, Massachusetts, where many years prior, a meteorite crashed, as we mentioned before, mutating the land from underneath, um, which sort of calls out nuclear meltdowns and stuff like that but either way uh, this story has the horrors unknowable trope as well as the combo of a sci-fi and horror mix them up which is like that is like love pure lovecraft right there with that those sorts of concepts and also he does uh this is where he gets to call of cthulhu let's talk about this yeah let's, let's get talk. into this let's so, get into this number one one of the things that i never learned having uh never read it before this week uh, in the story, one of the, the the Cthulhu is momentarily defeated. I did not realize this. I thought yeah. the story ends with Cthulhu rising and everybody goes, ah, and we all get eaten by the old elder gods. Uh, no, in in the actual story, the call of Cthulhu, our narrator breathlessly gives us the tale of how once the 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 the, the great uh, you know grand priest who is about to who arises from the depths in Rila. Uh, 
he is uh, our he our narrator talks about how a brave Norwegian sailor uh, hits Cthulhu in the head by ramming his steamboat into him and defeats him and knocks him down to knock him back to sleep. <laughs> yes, yes. They I literally am. the 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 great the the. The, the the single darkest, most unknowable horror, the, the, the bleak vision of the true chaos that dwells within the heart of reality is bonked on the head and is put back to sleep. <laughs> but I will say, I really do like this story. I mean, it is from the very beginnings with the, the cults surrounding Cthulhu, brought about by Cthulhu communicating with them through their dreams to the exploration of that forbidden island with its insane geometry and, of course, the uh, event of Cthulhu appearing, uh, you know, at at the end. It's great. It's great. The way the story, uh, you know, from the perspective of the narrator, uh, we follow his uncle's notes and that leads to the uh, archaeological society where everyone just stares at the little statue of Cthulhu and it's like, oh, fuck, it's made out of a rock, but I don't know what kind of rock it is. Oh, it's some weird rock. Fuck! <laughs> uh, to then the detective who busts the cult orgy in the middle of the swamp. Uh-huh. The, the spooky, es- the degenerate Eskimos. Then the story of our brave Norwegian sailor who bonks Cthulhu back into the void. <laughs> It's it's a thrilling tale. It's a genuinely great short story and has an appropriate build to, you know, from this like rumor to this whisper to this like, uh, you know, there's lots of action. There's lots of chase scenes and you know, all the grand uh, kind of Lovecraftian descriptors of non-Euclidean geometry and and weird spaces that drive a, a person mad. Like it's 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 pretty much. You know, if I, I think if you want to get into Lovecraft, start with Dagon and then go to Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Maybe get into uh, Innsmouth after that. But like it's it's really like it is a singular short story, uh, even though stuff like a big undersea monster waking up is been used in a lot of different things. The idea of dark cults uh, operating in the perimeters of society is enough you know but but he brings it he brings it all together in such a cool package and then of course cthulhu the monster itself with his description of cthulhu um in 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 it being quote a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline but with an octopus like head whose face was a mass of feelers a scaly rubbery looking body prodigious claws on hind and four feet and long, narrow wings behind. And I think a big part of Cthulhu's popularity, I was watching one person's YouTube dissertation on this, and I, I, will, I will agree with this point, is that Cthulhu is like the one monster he very specifically properly describes, and it is a good description. Whereas a lot of the other ancient ones are like, ancient gods or whatever, are like a massive orbs, or just like a bunch of just squigglies, all, you know, like, and, and, and largely leaves things up to your mind to conceive, whereas Cthulhu was like, no, squid face, bat wings, you know, it's got, it's got all that stuff. And when you visualize it and people have done such an amazing job of art with artistic interpretations of this concept. And it looks fucking terrifying, like in a foggy ocean environment with, with this giant mass coming out of the water that looks like that is just a winner right there. Uh, Another great thing about Cthulhu is that it is the most uh, fully described entity, but even then, it's always described as like the harbinger of the old ones, the like head priest that is just 
like just the the barest like taste of what else is to come. It freaks and if me something, out. Yeah, if something that horrifying is just like the messenger. Yeah. What it what is coming behind him? It freaks me out like giant sea. But I also like to freak myself out by looking of artistic interpretations of like giant sea monsters with like tiny human bodies just on the surface of the ocean. Right. Like that just that is such again, such a winner concept like that horrifyingly huge mass in the deep unknown abyss of the ocean. I mean, it's it's uh, it's great. There's something weird that taps into the human psyche with that, I'm sure it's probably like survival instincts and things like that, but it definitely connects in a really great way. Have you found the drawing that Lovecraft did of Cthulhu? No. Uh, I will boop it to you on the Discord. Thank but you. Uh, in 1934, I think when a fan was like, hey, I want to actually make this sculpture that you described and call it Cthulhu, like, I need a few more details. Lovecraft writes back with oh, a hand drawn yeah. uh, version, and it is. Just a real lumpy, fat piece of shit with an octopus <laughs> face. But it's there. But you see, it is there. Like, the, mm-hmm. the basic concept, for sure. Uh, but either way, uh, Lovecraft stated in a journal that he had a dream in which a man brings a newly made artifact to a museum, revealing that though the creation of it is recent, the dreams that led to it are old. And he also established in Beyond the Wall of Sleep, we have uh, the concept of ancient ones communicating with humans via dreams. This story, by the way, is initially rejected by Wright, uh, who we were talking about before, the editor. Um, but it was a mutual friend, Donald Wandre, who convinces him to publish it in 1928. It's also inspired by Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Kraken, about a ancient, huge octopus-like creature in a deep slumber at the bottom of the sea that, when awakened, will bring about the apocalypse. Also, uh, our author, Lord Dunsany, wrote of a slumbering god that would bring about the end of worlds, someone Lovecraft was reading at the time. Then there's Guy de Maupassant's The Horla, which spoke of unseen extraterrestrial organisms that can manipulate the minds of humans. So all of these tropes, he just, again, brings it all together to make this, like, great package uh, that would obviously become a mainstay in so much nerd culture, pop culture even at this point. But uh, this is around the time, late 20s, Uh, Getting into the early 30s, uh, Lovecraft eventually cannot take New York any longer and moves back to Providence and in with his racist anti-Semitic aunts, which is probably the main catalyst for Sonia pushing for divorce from Lovecraft, who reluctantly grants it to her, though never actually signs the forms. However, Sonia does remarry in 1936 because she's like, I ain't living with your crazy ass aunts. We're not doing this. So his return to Providence marks his most prolific period before his death, though not a successful one per se professionally. He's not making any money. He never does. Uh, His important works are written such as The Dunwich Horror, The Whisperer in the Darkness, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, The Shadow Out of Time, The History of the Necronomicon, The Other Gods, and The Haunter of the Dark. At this time, uh, he forms what will later be called the Lovecraft Circle, comprising of colleagues that enjoyed his created universe so much that he allowed them to write stories within it. He's the original Paul Feige. Uh, Some of these folks go on to be big names in the horror and sci-fi golden age, such as Robert Bloch, who wrote Psycho, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, and poet Hart Crane, who wrote The Bridge, a poem Lovecraft super loved. Then there's Arkham House Publishing imprint founders August Der- Derleth and Donald Wandre, who I mentioned before, who convinced the call of Cthulhu to get published. Uh, uh, the latter of which, Wandre, would eventually uh, greatly help popularize Lovecraft's work after his death. 
And really, it is this publishing imprint that puts out his work in such a way that we, we would not have this, this popularization of Cthulhu and, and everything else without Arkham, uh, mm-hmm. Arkham House. But regardless, Lovecraft sinks deeper into poverty, this time after a series of poor decisions professionally and a stubbornness when it came to taking notes on his work, as well as a hatred of rejection. Uh, And the Great Depression gives way to a change in Lovecraft's belief away from capitalism and actually towards socialism later in his life. However, he does maintain, don't worry guys, he maintains his racism. In a letter to August Durleth in 1935, he announced his retirement from attempting to write professionally, largely due to the reception of At the Mountains of Madness by various publishers, which At the Mountains of Madness, besides Call of Cthulhu, probably his second most popular work. I mean, we wouldn't have The Thing. We wouldn't have uh, basically the very idea of a horror story set in the Arctic uh, was very much born from At the Mountains of Madness. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, so in a way I kind of get it because that's probably his most popular work and everyone's shitting on it. But yeah, he just couldn't take the rejection anymore. And his mental state started to decline, namely due to the death of his friend, Conan creator Robert E. Howard, who shot himself moments after his mother died in a hospital, which shook Lovecraft to the core. I mean, nothing is, Sonya is maybe the one like bright light that no no one went mad or committed suicide. (laughs) Like everybody around him seems to just have these tragic, tragic ends and, and definitely informs his horror writing. Uh, But either way, he started suffering from what he referred to as the grip, which uh, turned out to be cancer, which ate away at his intestines throughout 1936. And though he refused to see a doctor through most of this time, he finally had to check himself into Jane Brown Memorial Hospital in early 1937. He passed away on March 15th, 1937, at just 47 years old. A tragic end for this sci-fi horror writer for sure. Um, Man... So, uh, Jake, I have a I have an ending quote, but I I'm sure you have more. So he dies, but the Lovecraft circle is still around, and it's actually uh, August Derleth who keeps the spark alive. Um, he, through the Arkham House Publishing uh, House, keeps printing Lovecraft's works and assembled short stories. Uh, long after his death, even though they did not make a profit because he believed so much in Lovecraft's vision and in the just the, the potential of it, uh, Derleth himself would then go on to do additional Cthulhu mythos work. He's the one who's kind of responsible for the, uh, I, I don't know, sanctification, the actual um, uh pantheonification of the Cthulhu, of the elder gods, their relation to one another, and uh, kind of takes what were like a a, a loose interconnected series of like figures into a followable canon that people can actually get obsessed with and uh, fight about the details over. Um, But those, the Lovecraft's work gets republished over and over again. And oddly enough, it's after World War II when the books are translated to French, uh, yes. where the French intellectuals after World War II had a insatiable hunger for American Gothic fiction, first at, with Edgar Allan Poe, and then as a natural jumping off point in terms of uh, themes and mood and chronology, these Lovecraft books where, uh, you know, it's like making it big in Japan, making it big where no one knows you. Like he, you know, the French 
audience didn't know who he pissed off. They didn't know about his racist screeds. They were just cool, spooky stories from this glamorous country, America, that just emerged pretty victorious in World War II. And it's that kind of hype that then reflects back through the 1960s back in America. And uh, Arkham House becomes a accomplished and successful publishing house on the back of Lovecraft's work. Lovecraft and Cthulhu stories then become popular once again in anthology series like Astounding Stories, Weird Tales, all these like kind of EC comics, you know, horror boom kind of stories. Lovecraft is an emerging figure among, you know, Ray Bradbury, uh, Isaac Asimov, Lovecraft. These are all like these genre writers that become uh, become popular. And obviously I wasn't around for that, but uh, he's he's like I said, he's the uh, he's the kinks to Tolkien's The Beatles. And like, every, it, yeah, and every horror writer would probably attribute some inspiration from him. I mean, we definitely talked about it in our, in our Junji Ito episode. It's hugely inspired by the cosmic horror of Lovecraft. Stephen King, hugely inspired by that cosmic horror uh, and all of those tropes in, therein. It, it is... Guillermo del Toro, Guillermo del Neil Toro. Gaiman, like, you know, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Mike profound. Mignola and Hellboy. Like, yeah. it's this beautiful... Uh, mythology uh, upon which a, a lot of people can draw upon. And like I s- said earlier, in 2008, it becomes public domain. Yes. So everyone from video game creators to comic book writers to, you know, tabletop. Uh, movie, yeah, tabletop gamers all can like play with this incredibly well established and thematically sound uh, play space that he's laid out. It's a different kind of horror than zombie horror. It's a different kind of horror than uh, classic universal monsters. It's its own unique kind of dread of what what lurks beyond the edges of science, what, uh, you know, the uh, the cosmic horror rather than the visceral. Also, I think a lot of fun, especially for gaming purposes, is the the idea that so many of the characters go insane. In his the work. sanity meter. The Dear sanity God. meter is so such a fun thing to fuck with when it comes to tabletop or any of that kind of role-playing stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. that that, that, uh, anyone at any point can just completely flip as a character is a great, great fun. It's fun until you're playing a game of Call of Cthulhu and your character can no longer make saving throws because he saw a really weird vase. (laughs) (laughs) Because you failed your sanity check and took two more points, and now you're a gibbering mess of nerve and, and... psychopathy because that weird vase pushed you over the edge jake what a weird wild story man i mean i'm so glad we finally got to cover this and i hope we did it justice and i hope if you're a huge lovecraft fan we didn't like make you feel uh at all shitty because i do i do have to respect the 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 universe and the work uh that that is not insanely racist (laughs) and let's be clear it is insanely racist yeah so much of it but either way uh, i have a quote to end on Um, Jake, shall we do that? Let's do it. This is from writer Erica Henderson. Sums it up pretty well. Lovecraft made a world where humans are alone, floating on a rock in a terrifying larger universe that we cannot possibly comprehend because our time in it has been so short and we are so insignificant compared to the horrors from the Cthulhu mythos. So much of modern horror is based on that idea. We wouldn't have Ghostbusters if it weren't for Lovecraft. And that's the best argument I can think of for his work. Um, we wouldn't have a lot of things, uh, wildly enough. And it's also, again, it's one another one of those stories of America stories in so many ways, then and now. 
of yeah. exactly how this kind of thinking online is bred and how uh, these t- sorts of types, these types of people are created. I don't think that they're just a natural occurrence. I think there's a lot going on with the family and things of that nature that influence this type of this type of person. And um, Cthulhu rules. By the way, you can pronounce it however you want. We said Cthulhu. It's honestly supposed to be pronounced. So don't come at me if you say Cthulhu or whatever it is you say. Uh, <laughs> apparently it's unspeakable because it is an Ang- It is in, uh, from an alien tongue, Jake. And there... As the figure appeared into me in the moonlight, I saw a face so disfigured and beyond comprehension that to even recall it would be to go mad. Nay, to look at this face would be to see the void itself, to understand my own limitations of faculties. A horrifying visage, so terrible, so eldritch in its abominableness that I dare not even imagine what it could possibly be. Also, it looked like a fish. It was like a fish face. It had big fish eyes and fish lips. It was a fish face. I'm describing it now without going crazy so you understand that it's like a fishy face. (laughs) All right. right. Thank you, everybody, for uh, your support, for listening. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, we do weekly episodes, $5 a month. It's awesome. Our study sessions on Sunday for just $15 a month to get into that secret special Discord. Uh, we hang out. We just talk about um, whatever we're studying that week. Last week, I played a lot of Bloodborne, which was fun because we were doing Lovecraft, so we just kind of snuck it in. But either way, check us out, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out, twitch.tv forward slash Ho. And hey, check out twitch.tv forward slash Professor Addy, my boy. Thank you again, man. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung and you see all my thoughts and plops. And it really got to push hard on that Patreon because it helps support the show. It, uh, you get so much bonus content. It's basically you get an extra show every week. And uh, the study stream is one of the best hangs. It is a cruelty free space where we get to, you get a sneak preview of what we're going to be talking about on future episodes. It's a very good hang. So Patreon.com slash WizBrew. Check it out. All right. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on Nyag Fatag, Gagaga, Rev Cthulhu Riali. Dear God, he's gone mad! This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine.